Today, the World Anti-Doping Agency suspended Russia's sports drug testing lab. 99% of Russian athletes are guilty of doping. It's worse than we thought. If this is true, it is an unimaginable level of criminality. Welcome to the ShakeOut Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Van Buskirk. Today on the show, we dive into the dark world of doping. We explore the Russian drug scandal that rocked the global athletic community and the response, or lack thereof, from the World Anti-Doping Agency. There are so many layers of conspiracy, corruption, and cover-up to this story that it might seem more like the plot of a dramatic crime show rather than a real-life account of cheating athletes. The details are convoluted, and new information emerges almost daily. Just last week, 12 more Russian track and field athletes were found guilty of doping and were slammed with multi-year bans from competition. This episode was a few weeks in the making. Well, actually, it's been a few years in the making. Our story really starts four years ago. Back in December of 2014, a German TV channel called ARD released a documentary entitled Top Secret Doping, How Russia Makes Its Winners. The documentary featured Russian 800-meter star Yulia Stepanova and her husband Vitaly Stepanov, who was a former top advisor for the Russian Anti-Doping Agency, or RUSADA. This pair of whistleblowers made stunning allegations against RUSADA, accusing them of widespread state-sponsored doping. And they had proof. Yulia had secretly recorded several meetings with her coaches, doctors, and teammates, in which banned substances were openly discussed and administered. In most cases, taking the substances was non-negotiable, and the doctors and coaches extorted money from the athletes in exchange for the promise that they would never be caught. Presented with this damning evidence, the World Anti-Doping Agency, known in its short form as WADA, formed an independent commission to investigate RUSADA and their national testing lab in Moscow. Then, the former head of that very lab, Dr. Grigory Rachenkov, came forward with even more information. This time, it implicated the Russian Sports Ministry and Russia's FSB Security Service. These new allegations were explosive and unprecedented. Never before had a country's government and secret service been caught spearheading a scheme of this scale to intentionally circumvent global anti-doping laws. Dr. Ichenkov, like the other whistleblowers, was exiled to the United States following his public allegations. He is the subject of the 2017 hit movie Icarus, which popularized this story beyond just the world of sport. Less than two weeks before the opening of the 2016 Rio Olympics, WADA released the findings of their independent commission, which was chaired by Canadian lawyer Richard McLaren. This report, dubbed the McLaren Report, corroborated the claims of a state-sponsored doping scheme and recommended to the International Olympic Committee, or IOC, that all Russian athletes be banned from competing in Rio. But in a move that surprised and infuriated the athletic community, the IOC refused to institute a nationwide ban for Russia. Instead, they passed that responsibility onto the individual sport federations. Only two federations, track and field and weightlifting, upheld the ban. At the end of 2016, 
the second part of the McLaren report was released. It proved that 28 athletes from the Sochi Winter Olympics in 2014 had been using performance-enhancing drugs. It also found that Rusada played a significant role in facilitating the doping. 17 national anti-doping organizations, including Canada and the U.S., came together to put pressure on the IOC to ban all Russian athletes from the 2018 Winter Olympics. This time, the measure was successful, and for the first time in history, a nation was outright banned from an Olympic Games for violating international anti-doping laws. Along with the ban, water released a series of conditions that Russia would need to meet in order to be reinstated in global competition. They called it the Rusada Roadmap to Code Compliance. Both the ban and the roadmap were initially touted as steps forward in the clean sport movement. But this feeling of reassurance was short-lived. Russia refused to meet two important conditions of the roadmap. The first was that the Russian government recognize the McLaren report's findings and admit to running a state-sponsored doping scheme. Vladimir Putin did acknowledge that several Russian athletes had taken banned substances, but refuted all allegations that the government had anything to do with it. The second condition was that Rusada open its Moscow lab and turn over all athlete samples to WADA for testing. The roadmap was clear. Russia would not be considered compliant or reinstated until these conditions were met. But this past September, only 10 months after the publication of the roadmap and with two conditions still unmet, WADA inexplicably reversed their own criteria and reinstated Rusada. Faced with huge backlash from the international community, WADA tried to justify their decision, saying that they had negotiated Russia's reinstatement in exchange for access to the lab. They set a December 31st deadline for this access. A five-person team from WADA traveled to Moscow on the day of the deadline with the promise that they would be able to enter the lab and take the samples. But instead, they were turned away. The December 31st deadline had not been met. A few weeks ago, the WADA Compliance Review Committee, or CRC, met in Montreal to come up with recommendations for how to deal with Russia. On the day of the meeting, I spoke with Paul Melia, who is the president and CEO of the Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport. I also spoke with Iñaki Gomez, a Canadian Olympian and sitting member on several commissions who advocate globally for athlete rights. We start this episode with Paul Melia. Good afternoon, Paul. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure, Kate. So we have a lot to unpack in this episode, and the enormity of the subject matter can be a little bit overwhelming. You know, I'm an elite track athlete myself. I've been following these developments closely over the years. Plus, I did a fair bit of research leading into this episode, but I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around the complexity of it all. So I'd like to start by just clarifying a few things here, because there's a lot of confusion about the various roles and responsibilities of these global organizations. So there's WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, and they call themselves an international independent agency, um, and they monitor the World Anti-Doping Code. Then there's the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. And finally, there are the individual sport federations. And in the case of track and field, the body is the IAAF, the International Athletics Association's Federation, who is responsible for the sport of athletics. So firstly, Could you give us a sense of what the actual scope of WADA's ability is to enact real change? You know, WADA was tasked with making these recommendations, but can WADA itself place sanctions on countries like Russia, or is that the role of other organizations? 
Well, you know, I think one of the things that the um, the Russian scandal exposed was that the World Anti-Doping Code and WADA's responsibility and authority to ensure and enforce compliance with the code never contemplated, you know, a country uh, running a systematic doping program that completely, you know, undermines the code. And so having not contemplated that, there were no rules and there were no associated uh, sanctions for violations of those rules uh, for countries on this level of breaking the code. So what that did was WADA was left in the position of having received uh, the McLaren report, which proves, I think, beyond a reasonable doubt that the Russian government uh, was very much involved in running this program, had had the lab involved, it had their anti-doping agency involved, um, it had the athletes involved, it had their police involved. So upon receiving that, the World Anti-Doping Agency then is left with no real <clears throat> authority uh, to impose any kind of sanction under the code. Uh, so what they could do is they could recommend, and that's what they did do. They recommended to the IOC, the governing body for the Olympic Games, that Russia be banned from participating in uh, the Rio Games. The IOC, upon receiving that recommendation, decided not to follow it. And uh, instead, you know, they passed the buck and said, you know, international federations, you look at the evidence with respect to your individual athletes and you establish your criteria, you make your own decisions because, you know, there might be some clean athletes in Russia and we don't want them to be unfairly punished uh, by any kind of blanket ban. So it starts to get very complicated now all of a sudden. So what WADA could do was make a recommendation. They did that at the time. But as they made that recommendation, it also exposed the fact that their chairperson, um, Sir Craig Reedy, the president of WADA, was also a senior vice president on the IOC executive committee. So WADA was making the recommendation. The IOC executive committee was receiving it. So again, it pointed out a very, you know, a very important conflict of interest that existed and made you know, the IOC executive committee receiving that recommendation uh, and the and WADA making it uh, in a conflict of interest because Sir Craig was on both bodies. So that led to calls for governance reform of WADA because while, as you state, WADA is, calls itself this independent organization, this situation revealed they weren't operating very independently. Uh, so governance reform has been called for and... Um, you know, processes are in place to try and advance that. It's been advancing at a very, very, very slow pace. And, uh, you know, not uh, the changes that certainly national anti-doping organizations have been calling for have not yet taken place. Mm -hmm. But the other thing it did for the World Anti-Doping Agency was look at their um, compliance standard for compliance with the World Anti-Doping Code and realize they needed to revise it so that it could deal with these kinds of non-compliance. And so they revised the um, International Standard for Code Compliance, and that came into force sometime in February, I think, of last year. But it came into effect after uh, Russia had committed this uh, this gross violation of the code. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't able to be applied 
uh, to Russia in that instance. So very complicated, but your question was what authority does WADA have at the time that this information was exposed, didn't really have any authority other than to recommend they've updated their compliance standard. They now have new authority that they can use this situation as of December 31st, certainly called for them to use that new authority. And it was surprising, I think, to everyone that they didn't act following the December 31st deadline that came and went and surprising that they would schedule a meeting in mid-January to deal with it rather than to schedule a meeting you know, immediately after that deadline. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So we've covered a lot there. And I want to just go back and, and dig just a little deeper into a couple of those things. So, you know, you mentioned that there's sort of this conflict of interest. And, you know, from the perspective of the IOC, there is a lot to be lost by sanctioning Russia because that country routinely hosts major championships. They bring a lot of revenue to global athletic events. They win a lot of medals. They sort of have this aura of a global superpower. And of course, as you mentioned, WADA likes to call itself an independent organization. However, if I'm correct, half of their members are actually IOC members as well, um, in addition to Sir Craig Reedy. Yeah, that's correct. On the uh, on the executive committee, half of that uh, executive committee is made up of IOC members. You, you mentioned the word reform, and that's been talked about a lot in, in, in these circles in this community. What specifically would you like to see as reform? Would it be eliminating any participation of IOC board members on WADA as, as you know, sitting members of WADA or a reduced number? You know, what, what sort of reform do you think would be ideal to eliminate some of these conflicts of interest? Well, as a national anti-doping organization, we have worked with uh, some of the other leading national anti-doping organizations and uh, and made some very specific proposals in, in that regard. But to speak to them very, very sort of superficially, I would say, you, you know, number one is that the, you know, the operation of WADA, the staff of WADA in carrying out their job of enforcing compliance with the code by code signatories, you know, needs to be able to happen operationally in an independent way. Secondly, that the executive committee of WADA um, that provides stewardship and uh, guidance to the organization should be comprised of independent members and um, in particular should have athlete perspectives uh, represented on that committee. Um, So it should be more expert-based. And then at the foundation board level, you know, this is where the major stakeholders like the governments and and the sport movement who are putting in all of the money um, that funds the operation of WADA. So there needs to be accountability back to the funder. That could happen at the foundation board level. And the foundation board, though, should also have stakeholder representation from athletes and from national anti-doping organizations uh, so that the major stakeholders in this game all have an opportunity to participate in that governance model. Okay. And speaking to the, the role that WADA has and the recommendations that it's made, of course, one of the most striking things that's happened was this reinstatement of RUSADA in September, just a few months ago, despite the fact that they had not met two of actually the first two criteria laid out in the roadmap to Russian reinstatement. Of course, those being the acknowledgement of the validity of the McLaren report, which they, you know, sort of did, but not really. <laughs> and the second, and I think, you know, 
uh, equally important one was, of course, this access to their Moscow testing laboratory. And they were given till the end of the calendar year, a December 31st deadline, and they did not achieve that. Now, I understand that as of about January 9th, that lab was eventually opened up to WADA to come and inspect. But what sort of message does this send? And maybe that's a bit of an obvious question, but how can um, athletes and the global athletic community in general have any sort of trust in, in WADA, in this organization that's supposed to be protecting us, when they seem to be continually moving the goalposts to accommodate Russia at their whim? Yeah, I think it sends a terrible message to to athletes in particular um, and to the sport uh, community generally, because, you know, what seemed to happen there was that we had this, you know, the worst doping scandal in the history of sport. No one could even ever have imagined that a country, you know, would take the code and look at how they could get by and 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 avoid being detected for running a doping program like that. People just didn't even contemplate that. It wasn't even in the code, you know, because it it was it, it would seem so outrageous, but it happened. It was revealed and it was going on for a number of years. And so rightfully so, athletes and other stakeholders in the sports movement wondered, well, what kind of sanction will be imposed on Russia for this? It's it's beyond all belief that what they've done. So presumably a proportionate sanction will follow. And then we got into, well, WADA didn't have the authority. We just talked about that, that to revise their compliance standard, those with the authority, the IOC, you know, punted it over to the IFs. You know, I think we should point out that the IPC did exercise their authority and did ban and the Russian Paralympic Committee from participating in Rio and the subsequent Winter Olympic Games, and as has the IAAF uh, for athletics. So, so they're to be commended for using the authority they had and making those decisions. But the IOC, you know, has not done that. And what you saw happen over time was this shift from how is Russia going to be proportionally sanctioned for what they did mm-hmm. to how do we get Russia back in? Because as you point out, you know, they are a global uh, sports superpower. They host international championships. You know, they put a lot of money um, into the Olympic movement. So um, sponsors really value all of those Russian eyeballs uh, in television contracts. So there, there were a lot of, you know, financial and political incentives for the IOC to uh, want to get Russia back in. And that seemed to become the preoccupation and and lost in all of that was, you know, how will we proportionately sanction Russia for what they did? Right. And so all of a sudden you've got this negotiation going on um, around the roadmap, which was supposed to be the conditions that were set, you know, which I would even suggest was not even a sanction. They were just basic conditions to allow for reinstatement, but they got negotiated. They got negotiated, these final two conditions that Russia refused to meet, got negotiated. So I think as an athlete, an athlete would be looking at that. An athlete realizes that if they get caught doping, you know, the starting point's a four-year ban from their sport. Mm -hmm. And certainly they aren't invited in to negotiate with WADA, you know, how they might reduce that to something less impactful. Those sanctions are there because... 
they are felt to be a really significant deterrent uh, to athletes to engage in doping. And so I think athletes looking at what happened with Russia and looking at how WADA and the IOC managed that situation, you know, must be terribly disappointed um, and let down and feel betrayed Mm -hmm. by these organizations. So I, I think I probably know the answer to this, but, you know, one of the ways that WADA has sort of justified you know, this moving of the goalpost is that they claim that it's ultimately a positive thing that there are at least conversations being had now. And at least, you know, some of the criteria have been met. Do you think that there's any validity to these claims by WADA that, you know, any amount of progress is better than none, and therefore we can sort of be soft on the the sanctions or the rules uh, implemented for Russia, because at least we're moving forward, even if it's at a snail's pace? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think there is. I, I think that rationale is is really hollow. I think that the roadmap was established. Everyone agreed to it. All of the conditions were felt to be appropriate and reasonable, and then all of a sudden, Russia is able to start dictating how the final two conditions will be met. And uh, I don't think that's. I don't think that's right. And the rationale that you know by reinstating. Rusada and making it conditional upon delivering that data by December 31st allows us to bring them under the new standard. You know, we didn't have to do that. We could have just stuck with the original roadmap and those conditions and compliance reinstatement would have been conditional upon receipt of the data because what's the quality of the data? Mm -hmm. We don't know the quality of the data. Even if that team did come back on January 9th with the data, we don't know what the quality of it is, how it's going to line up with uh, the McLaren report and all of the thousand um, athlete samples that he's referenced that were probably involved in the program. You know, that remains to be seen. So if the data has been scrubbed and cleaned and, and ends up being meaningless, Russia can still say, well, we complied with your requirement and you, you must continue to find us code compliant. Right, which of course was one of the concerns for them pushing the date in the first place. You know, the the sort of glaring question is: you had a significant amount of time to open up your lab. Why wasn't that able to happen when a five person team from WADA was actually in place in Moscow, ready to enter, and were denied entry? And and you know that, as I said, begs the question: what were you doing with the extra time, and why couldn't you grant access then? So the WADA Compliance Review Committee is meeting yesterday and today, Monday and Tuesday of this week in Montreal to discuss all of this. And from what I understand, they will um, take all of this information and come up with further recommendations about how to proceed. What do you hope will come out of this CRC meeting? And maybe a separate question, what do you expect will come out of this meeting? Well, what I what I hope would come out of the meeting is that the uh, Compliance Review Committee would look at the fact that as of December 31st, uh, Russia did not meet that condition of providing access to and providing the samples and the uh, management information data to WADA by that date. Um, so they feel, failed to meet that. And I hope that they don't, even if they've now got it, say, oh, well, we got it. In that case, why didn't you make the deadline January 15th when you were meeting? December 31st was a meaningless deadline. So I hope that they will treat that deadline as meaningful and they will find that Russia did not meet the deadline and that there should be a consequence that follows from that. I don't know exactly what that consequence would be, um, but I think there should be a consequence. 
Mm-hmm. And and are you hopeful that that will happen, or are you remaining a bit pessimistic based on of the the, the trend until this point? <laughs> yeah, I remain very pessimistic based on how things have uh, unfolded. Because as I said, it it's less. It seems that WADA and the IOC are less concerned about appropriate sanctions for Russia, and they're more interested in how can we get Russia back into uh, the Olympic family and put all of this behind us and uh, perhaps even pretend it didn't happen, but but they can't get this behind them quickly enough, and so they don't want it to drag on. So if they've got the data now, they may happily say, well, we got it, even if it's a couple of weeks late, that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe moving forward into a slightly more positive realm here, Canada is seen globally as sort of a leader when it comes to anti-doping efforts. And, you know, we we routinely have some of the lowest positive test results, and we also test some of the largest numbers of athletes. So what is Canada and the CCES doing to progress anti-doping efforts in our own country and abroad? Well, certainly in our own country, uh, we want to make sure that, you know, we're never making accusations or advocating for uh, things to happen internationally if we are not operating a code compliant program in Canada. So we continue to uh, stay abreast of and make the appropriate improvements to our program here in Canada so that it remains code compliant uh, because WADA rightfully now again in the wake of um, the Russian scandal um, had realized the failings and shortcomings of their audit procedures which were just self-report paper-based they're now getting out into the field and doing site visits and uh, so we want to make sure here in Canada that we are operating a code compliant program we then participate on a number of uh, water committees um, in the area of education in the area of testing and so we continue to contribute our experience in the field in implementing the world anti-doping code uh, to those committees uh, so that uh, again that experience can be incorporated into our, our, our international efforts moving forward and we'll continue to participate with other NATO leaders to call out stakeholders in international sport if they appear to be, you know, undermining the code and, uh, you know, not protecting the rights uh, of athletes to participate in clean sport. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that, that will focus in the near term, again, on reform to WADA so that it is a more robust, independent organization that can go about its regulatory function of ensuring compliance with the World Anti-Doping Code unhindered by interference from the IOC. Mm-hmm. And as a as a member of the registered testing pool here in Canada myself, I have to say, no matter how inconvenient it is, I'm always very grateful for that knock on the door because I know that it's a sign that the powers that be are working in the best interest of myself and my fellow clean athletes. For some context here, anti-doping is overseen by two levels of authority. The first, as we've been talking about, is WADA, which primarily conducts in-competition tests at major international events. The second jurisdiction lies with the anti-doping organizations in individual countries. In Canada, our anti-doping program is overseen by the Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport. They perform in-competition tests at domestic events, as well as out-of-competition tests, in which athletes are given no advance notice that they will be tested. 
The CCES keeps a database of every Canadian national team member called the Registered Testing Pool. Athletes in this database are required to provide what's called whereabouts, a one-hour window of every day of the year where they can be found without prior notice and asked by a doping control officer to provide a blood or urine sample. As a member of this testing pool, I can tell you that the process can feel pretty invasive. Strangers come into your home and supervise you while you provide them with bodily fluids. In the case of urine sample collection, the protocol is not only for the doping control officer to be in the bathroom with you, but also to have a clear view of the stream of urine leaving your body. The athlete then goes through a process of depositing the urine into two separate collection bottles, which lock upon closing. The samples are transported in a sealed vessel to a testing lab where they're screened for a wide range of performance-enhancing substances. As I said to Paul, although being a member of this testing pool can be inconvenient or even intrusive, it's also a sign of Canada's robust approach to ensuring anti-doping in our country. So Paul, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but just finally... As I mentioned, as a member of this registered testing pool, um, as someone who devotes my life to athletic competition and, you know, strives to represent Canada on the international stage, I can't help but feel disheartened, not only by the incredible prevalence of doping, but also the lack of progress and change over the past several years. And I know that this is a concern and frustration that's echoed by a lot of my peers. So I think that there is sort of a begrudging acceptance in a way that will never completely eradicate global doping. But do you believe that we can radically reduce occurrences of global doping, whether it be individual or state-sponsored, and significantly level the playing field when it comes to global athletics? Like, what would you say to athletes listening to this right now? Well, first of all, I would say to Canadian athletes that we at the CCS, we recognize how intrusive you know, the application of the World Anti-Doping Code is uh, in your lives. And, you know, you uh, reference the whereabouts requirements and uh, um, and then being available and providing, you know, urine and blood samples. And, you know, we, we understand how intrusive it is. And we appreciate that you as athletes understand that in terms of fighting doping in sport, you you need to allow those incursions into your, into your private lives. But we also understand that it's very distressing for you if you think we're doing a great job here in Canada, but you believe that there are other countries, and we have now seen um, in the case of Russia where it's not happening. And in fact, it's not just one or two athletes. In that case, it was the whole country and their athletes who are running a doping program. You know, that's very discouraging. But I like to think that out of these kinds of crises can can come progress. And so I do believe that the World Anti-Doping Code is the gold standard in terms of how to fight doping in sport. I think that the the issue becomes, you know, it needs to be implemented the way it's designed and it needs to be implemented across countries, across sports, across all athletes, if it's going to be effective. And if we can do that, then I think we will make some really significant strides against doping in sport. And I think we would be able to build the confidence of Canadian athletes and other athletes around the world that they are competing on a level playing field and competing against clean athletes. Well, that's a very positive note to leave it on. So, Paul Melia, thank you very much for your time today and, and for all the hard work of the CCS on behalf of all clean athletes in Canada. Well, you're very welcome and thank you for that. 
Iñaki Gomez is a Canadian race walker and two-time Olympian. He's also a lawyer, and following his retirement from professional athletics in 2017, he decided to give back to the sport world by using his expertise off the race course. Iñaki is a member of the Canadian Olympic Committee Athletes Commission, and was also elected as the chair of the IAAF Athletes Commission in March of last year. I began by asking what sort of impact he hopes to make in these roles. I connected with the very busy Inyaki shortly after his baby daughter had gone to sleep, and you can hear his wife making dinner in the background of our conversation. These roles are as good as the athletes that have them, right? I think historically there's been, you know, a tremendous number of athletes that have taken the roles and did a fantastic job, you know, advocating on behalf of the athletes. Um, I mean, the COC uh, Athletes Commission is, I would say, just some very passionate athletes that not not only take their role as advocates important, but but also the the impact that they can have uh, within the organization on various issues such as you know athletes' rights or marketing or uh, commercial rights. So uh, that's really what these roles are for. We're here to provide the organizations that we're you know form part of um, as much input as possible and ensure that the athlete voice is at the center of decisions that impact the athletes, but also the organization as a whole. Mm-hmm. And another organization that I understand you aren't a part of, but that is sort of athlete run is the WADA Athlete Committee. And following the recent missed deadline by Russia to open up their Moscow testing lab, that WADA Athlete Committee issued a fairly bold statement that read, we are extremely disappointed that the December 31st deadline was not adhered to. We now expect that following the promise recommended by the CRC, Russia will be declared non-compliant. Anything less will be considered a failure by WADA to act on behalf of clean athletes. So again, I understand that you aren't personally a member of this organization, but do you as uh, an individual, as a former athlete, and as a member of the COC Athletes Commission and the IAAF Athletes Commission agree with that statement? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's there's been a, a number of statements uh, made public, uh, whether it's by organizations or the media. And I think the WADA AC did a fantastic job at, at being very sort of succinct and to the point without being too emotional and just sticking to the facts. You know, there was a miss, you know, requirement. And as a, as a result, uh, based on the conditions that WADA had imposed on Rosetta, you know, the position is that, you know, WADA should take the necessary steps to discipline both Rosetta and Russia as a result. Now, of course, we hope that because these organizations like the IOC, like WADA, like the IAAF are really at their core, they should be operating on behalf of the interests of the athletes whom they represent. Hopefully, the athlete committees would have a a decent amount of impact. Now, in this case, do you think that these types of sort of bold or blunt statements that are somewhat counter to what's happening within organizations like WADA, do you think that they have much of an impact in terms of the pressure that they put on those organizations that are supposed to be advocating for athletes first and foremost? You have to see it as two ways. I think generally um, making public statements can be an effective method to bring light to issues or put pressure on individuals or groups or leaders. And initially when WADA, you know, sort of, in my view, failed to adhere to their principles and, and their rules, I think the public statements used by the athletes was, was an effective tool. My concern is the more it's done, it sort of devalues that strong nature of that voice when it's used publicly. And you have to find a balance between being, you know, always 
pointing the finger, being vocal, and then as groups or leaders that we are within the sport, using the internal channels from time to time to make the necessary uh, pushes and, and changes within. Many high-profile athletes, including yourself, have been fairly outspoken in their criticism of the way that everything has been handled in this situation with Russia. What do you see the role of athletes being in these kinds of cases? I mean, you spoke to that a little bit just now, but do, do you think that athletes have a responsibility to take a stand, whether it's public or, or through more sort of quiet channels, to, to advocate for themselves and to work on behalf of other clean athletes? I think it's, it's, our, it's our responsibility to adhere, the, adhere to the principles of fair sport and, and clean sport. So uh, by no means would I ever sort of say to an athlete, don't speak out. I, I just think we need to learn to use our, you know, our swords and our shields from time to time and then learn to use them wisely so that they're effective. Um, so, you know, you have seen a, high, a number of high profile athletes come out and speak, especially recently. And uh, I think they're valuable. They're, they're necessary. Um, but on balance, I think the ones that have roles within those organizations need to use their skills and their connections to also make internal channel changes. And, and I think that's the case. You know, I think members of the WADA AC, I'm sure they're working internally. Uh, they haven't been as vocal on this, but they are obviously supportive of the general movement. Yeah. So do you think that there are potentially some negative repercussions to this? And I don't want to get too speculative here, but unfortunately, we do hear cases where athletes feel as though they've sort of been blacklisted or that maybe they have felt that there are some negative repercussions to some of their vocalization of their concerns about the handling of these organizations, that there's sort of a sense of, oh, well, you know, you just focus on competing and we'll focus on taking care of the other things and you shouldn't sort of cross those boundaries. Have you seen that yourself or do you think that is a legitimate fear that some athletes should have? Yeah, I think um, the fear of repercussion from, from making statements is common in sport, and whether it's at the anti-doping level, international level, or even at domestic sort of NSO level. Uh, you know, again, I think it's learning how to use it, being effective and polite and, and not just, you know, throw stones. But there is a fear. I mean, that there are movements to increase athletes' rights across the entire scope of, of sport. And, you know, with the IOC Charter or Declaration of Rights and the IWADA Charter, well, that's one of the main concerns that we should be able to participate in sport free from any concerns of retribution and you know potential, like you said, blacklisting. And I think the, the generally, and I, I think athletes that take a stand and get involved are willing to risk that because they they see their their role as necessary and they see their their need to be leaders. Right. So I think that given the scope of the state-sponsored Russian doping, particularly in track and field, it's probably fair to say that all clean athletes have been affected, whether it be directly or indirectly, by this scandal on some level. But as an athlete yourself, a very accomplished Olympian, have you personally been impacted by Russian doping? You know, are there occasions where you've missed out on medals or opportunities that you thought you might have had and what toll might this have taken on how you felt about your sport in general? I was certainly affected. My event, the, the walks, was one of the most dirty events in the world of athletics. And, and unfortunately, you know, I was, you know, consistently behind Russians that, you know, ended up serving either one or two or life bans. And um, yeah, it may, it may have taken top eight finishes or medals at maybe not world championships for World University Games or uh, World Cup races. And what toll did that have on me or my psyche? I mean, at, at the time, I think all of us who are in sport know 
that there is always a potential for some person not to follow the rules. And do I you know, lose sleep over it? No. And do I get frustrated from time to time? Yes. But I, I can only do what's within my, my power and, and that being train best, stick to being you know, a clean athlete and, and just let my performance do the, do the talking. And in the ideal world, you got to trust that the systems in place are doing their job to ensure that athletes follow the rules. That isn't the case. And that's where I think athletes start getting frustrated. And the reality is, as we go forward, the more this scandal continues and the more that, you know, the leaders sort of mess with the appropriate necessary steps, public just loses interest and, you know, ultimately sort of devalues the, the, the sport. So the WADA Compliance Review Committee was meeting yesterday and today, Monday and Tuesday of this week. And I asked Paul this question as well, but I'd be curious to get your answer. It's a two-part question. What do you hope would come out of that meeting? And if it's a different answer, what do you think will actually come out of this meeting? To me, it's pretty clear. You know, you've already moved the goalposts and they fail again. It shows a complete disregard for the rules and systems and it sort of shows how little they care, unfortunately, it permeates into the entire culture of sport in, in Russia. And that, you know, if, if their entire country or government or federations are not following the rules, what's the incentive for their athletes to do so? And I mean, that's the bigger question going forward. You know, say they do get found compliant and eventually they are welcome back into the world of athletics, if that's ever the case. And, you know, can we trust that the athletes and the culture in that, in that system will ever change, regardless whether the anti-doping body is actually doing their job? Will the people change their mentality? And I think that's the biggest fear that people have and, and, and or concern, right, is from, from up to now, that doesn't seem to be the case. So ideally, from my perspective, the CRC will recommend that they're non-compliant, and then it's up to the WADA Exec Committee to make a decision. I asked Inyaki what he thought it would take to radically change the landscape of global sport, to reduce cases of doping, and to create a more level playing field. He pointed out that doping isn't restricted to Russia. Although a state-sponsored doping program, like the one in Russia, is unprecedented, doping infractions occur in vast numbers in other countries. Inyaki sees education for athletes, coaches, and administrators as a vital component to changing sport culture. He suggests that there are ways of incentivizing athletes to compete clean, like increasing funding, thereby reducing the desperate measures that some athletes take to support themselves. But he also says that at the root of the problem is a lack of oversight and accountability in global sport. The reality is that cheating happens in society at all levels. It's not just in sport, and, and we can't just get bogged down the fact that, oh, it's not perfect. It will never be perfect. Can we work towards improving it? Yes. People have been voicing what is necessary for an organization like WADA or other entities to do what they need to do, which is, frankly, it's good governance, which in sport, unfortunately, does not exist. I don't think there is, from my perspective, the sort of the gold, gold standard for good governance, whether it's in the world of finance or, or securities law or other areas that you know have a regulatory body. They have to follow certain rules and guidelines to ensure that there are checks and balances so people aren't taking advantage of the system. That doesn't exist in sport. There is no form or way that these entities need to structure themselves so that such, uh, issues such as corruption and embezzlement and 
cheating happens. So some kind of auditing of an organization is important. Transparency standards such as, you know, financial statements. And I, I think these are the kind of things that are very much present in the world around us in business and in other areas that need to be implemented now in sport. Because the reality is sport's no longer just sport. It's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry that does require sort of an adjustment. And, and I think we're phasing it hard on now. And, and unless we change, it might not last as, as we see it today. Well, and again, that can be a fairly demoralizing thought for some athletes. I mean, I, I, I can hear some optimism and some hope in what you're saying, but as you also mentioned, we can't be naive about the, the long road ahead of us. So as someone who retired from sport very recently, this is all very fresh to you. You're obviously still highly involved from an athlete advocacy level. What would you say, do you have any sort of final words for athletes listening to this today? What would you say to other athletes who are maybe feeling a little bit, as I said, demoralized or let down by some of the systems that should be in place to protect them? What would you tell them about maybe how they can approach everything they're hearing in the news right now and how they can move forward from this? Just generally, just my final thought on what people should do when they're feeling discouraged. I mean, again, find the joy in sport, get involved if you think you can make a difference. As athletes, you kind of train to look at the glass half full, right? You know, you, if you're only focusing on the negative races, you're going to be out of the sport fairly quickly. Um, it's not to say that over time, things don't get, get you down, but just focus on what you can do, just like you would in a race, and, and let the rest sort of unfold as, as, as it can. On January 22nd, Water released an official statement following their CRC meeting in Montreal. The 11 members of WADA's executive committee voted to continue considering RUSADA as compliant and reinstated. WADA President Sir Craig Reedy spoke of the, quote, significant progress that's been made in resolving the Russian doping matter. His statement continued, Collecting the all-important data is a critical step, and it was not easy to achieve. We are not yet at the finish line, and there is a lot more to do, but undeniably we are much further along than we would have been without the September decision. He acknowledged that, quote, several members of the executive committee voiced their disappointment that the December 31st deadline had been missed, but agreed that no sanctions in that regard should be imposed. The next step is for WADA to analyze the thousands of Russian samples from the Moscow lab, and this will likely take months. In the meantime, Russia continues to bid for major international games. Its athletes continue to train under a system that has been proven corrupt and there is still no admission on Russia's behalf of any state-sponsored involvement in their country's rampant doping. You can follow developments in this story and many others by subscribing to Canadian Running Magazine in print or in the online edition. You can find our show on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at ShakeoutPodcast. Talk again soon.